Well, good morning. My, can you guys hear me out there? I'm not sure if this, is this mic working okay? Okay, I couldn't tell. So, uh, the seminar, and everyone should have a handout, there's two pages, front and back, um, is entitled Introduction to Bible Interpretation and Bible Study Methods. I just want to start off by reading a quick story to kind of give the feel for why I believe so vigorously that this is such an important study. This is a, an important topic for every Christian, for every Bible student uh, to consider. Tuesday night arrived. Dan and Charlene had invited several of their neighbors to a Bible study, and now they were wondering if anyone would come. Several people had agreed to come, but others had not committed themselves. At 8 p.m., beyond all their wildest hopes, everyone who had been invited arrived. After some introductions and neighborhood chit-chat, they all sat down in the living room. Dan explained that he and his wife would like to read through a book of the Bible and discuss the material with that group. He suggested that the book be a gospel, and since Mark was the shortest, he recommended it. Everyone agreed, so although several said a bit nervously that they really did not know much about the Bible, Dan reassured them that it was all right, for no one present was a theologian, and they would work together in trying to understand the Bible. They then went around the room reading Mark, the first chapter, verses 1 through 15, verse by verse. Because of some of the different translations used, the New International Version, the Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, and the Living Bible, Dan sought to reassure all present that although the wording of the various translations might be different, they all meant the same thing. After they finished reading the passage, each person was to think of a brief summary to describe what the passage meant. After thinking for a few minutes, they began to share their thoughts. Sally was the first to speak. What this passage means to me is that everyone needs to be baptized, and I believe that it should be by immersion. John responded, that's not what I think it means. I think it means that everyone needs to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Ralph said, somewhat timidly, I'm not exactly sure what I should be doing. Should I try to understand what Jesus and John the Baptist meant or what the passage means to me? Dan told him that what was important was what the passage meant to him. Encouraged by this, Ralph replied, well, what it means to me is that when you really want to meet God, you need to go out into the wilderness just as John the Baptist and Jesus did. Life is too busy and hectic. You have to get away and commune with nature. I have a friend who says that to experience God, you have to go out into the woods and get in tune with the rocks. It was Corey who brought the discussion to an abrupt halt. The Holy Spirit has shown me, he said, that the, this passage means that when a person is baptized, in the, name of the, in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will descend upon him like a dove. This is what is called the baptism of the Spirit. Jan replied meekly, I don't think that's what it's meaning. Corey, however, reassured her that since the Holy Spirit had given him that meaning, it must be correct. Jan did not respond to Corey, but it was obvious she did not agree with what he had said. Dan was uncomfortable about the way things were going and sought to resolve the situation. So he said, maybe what we are experiencing is an indication that the richness of the Bible can mean so many different things. And so that is one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to bring uh, this story to us, is because I think that all of us 
have been in that situation before. We study the Bible, maybe we've gotten together with somebody, and what we really learn is, is that, man, we all kind of come to this from a different perspective, and sometimes we have differing views about what the Bible says. The question is, though, does God intend for us to read the Bible and all get a different meaning? I think most of us would agree that that probably isn't the case. So, to set this seminar up, I just wanted to read you the story, okay? Uh, a few things I want to kind of go over before we really get started, and one of them is uh, I want a little personal disclaimer, okay? Uh, I want to be really clear that everything that I'm presenting you today, it's not from me. It's not from myself. I'm not taking any of the glory. I'm not taking any of the recognition, but rather... It's what I have sought through the best sources that I believe, uh, number one, aligns and to be faithful with the biblical message, and two, is the most practical, stuff that can really practically help us in our everyday study of the Bible, okay? Uh, and with that, I do want to kind of give credit to my resources. I did put it on your handout. You have two of them. I put a little footnote that the bulk of this material came from two separate books, but I also consulted many others. Living by the Book by Howard G. and William D. Hendricks is a book that I highly recommend. Uh, it's a book that is basically the basis of what is known as inductive Bible study, something that you're going to be presented with today. So it's another text that I highly recommend. The other text uh, I also recommend, obviously we might have some disagreements at certain points, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of baby and, and not a lot of bathwater when it comes to these textbooks. And there's some of them that are really worthless and not very helpful at all, and I think these are some of the best that are out there and that are available, okay? So let's look at our objectives. What, what's the point of being here today, okay? What do we want to get out of this? We need to kind of set some, some groundwork first. The first thing we want to do is we want to identify what benefits there is in studying the Bible. Now, most of us probably agree that there is a benefit to study the Bible. We might have different views. The Bible itself actually tells us some of those benefits, and we're going to go over those in just a minute. We also want to identify why Bible interpretation is important. Bible interpretation is important. I think that just through that story, we can understand that maybe our interpretation plays a pretty significant role uh, in the way we come to the Bible and what we get out of it. Okay? Another, or another objective is to discover the basics of what is known as inductive Bible study. It's a specific Bible study method that I'm going to present to you. It's by no means the only method out there. There are many different methods. Uh, just as a caveat, just as kind of a side note, the study of biblical interpretation is in a very immense field of study. It's actually its own field of study. It's a subtopic within the study of biblical, biblical theology and biblical studies. And there's been an entire field devoted to this theory, all the way from understanding uh, you know, the most philosophical cores of literary theory to the more practical side, which you're going to be presented with today. So today, you're going to be introduced to what is known as inductive Bible study. Some of you guys might have been familiar with this. Maybe as we go along, you might have heard some of the terms. You might have heard some of the steps that's going to be presented to you. Okay? Uh, and the last objective is to identify some basic Bible study tools to aid in Bible study. I did not include that on the slides for the sake of time. I was worried that possibly we would be running out of time, but I did include it on your handout, and we can discuss that uh, when we come to the end. So the first question, <clears throat> why study the Bible? It's the first objective that we're trying to identify. There's three benefits, and these benefits actually come from the Scriptures. The first one is found in 1 Peter 2, verses 2. Quite plainly, the Scripture says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 
So we see that salvation, or rather Bible study, reading the Bible, is essential to spiritual growth. But let's just look at this. There's, in this text, there's three things that we can get out of this text. There's three different ideas that's present. One of them is the idea of our attitude. Our attitude. Like newborn babes. What's a newborn baby like? It longs. It, it wants that milk. It, it, it wants <clears throat> that, uh, that formula or that sustenance that allows them to continue to live, allows them to grow strong. And so it's an attitude. What we're being presented with here is that we are supposed to have a specific attitude as a newborn baby. It also talks about our appetite. It says not just get the, the, the pure milk, but long for it, desire it. There's three types of people when it comes to people who study the Bible. And I think that maybe we've been all three types of people in our spiritual journey. The first one is the nasty medicine type. What does that mean? Maybe Bible study is, you know, good for us, and we know maybe it helps us, it ails us, or or ails our sicknesses, but it's kind of bitter. It's not something you really enjoy, you don't really like it, it, it's hard to digest, and it almost kind of gives you like a gag reflex. Not because you hate the Bible, but because it just doesn't do anything for you. Almost it hurts your brain. The second type of person is your shredded wheat person. You know, it's, it's not bitter, but it's really not good. It's not something that's tasty. It, it, it fills you up, it does its job, but it's not something you enjoy. The third type of person is your strawberries and cream person. The person who longs for the Bible, what Peter's talking about here, who has a desire, a craving. There's an acquired taste that has taken place through maturity. The scriptures in Psalm 19.10 talks about the law of God, the words of God, the commandments of God being sweeter than honey. So the question we have to ask when it comes to Bible study, which person are we? Which person are we? The third different point, when we look at, you know, this passage shows our attitude, this passage shows the appetite we're supposed to have, it also shows the purpose of the word. And that purpose is growth. To grow, not just to know. Your end goal isn't just head knowledge. The end goal is to ultimately grow in stature and the nature of Jesus Christ, obviously. So that's the purpose of Bible study. Okay? Our next uh, essential benefit, or why we should study the Bible, is that it's uh, essential to spiritual maturity. And this is going to kind of play off of what we just talked about a minute ago. Peter says, you know, desire, long, uh, have an appetite for that milk, that milk of the word. And interestingly enough, Hebrews kind of talks a little bit about something that seems almost contradicting. Okay? Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 14 says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So we have to ask the question, how do we get to this point? First, we have Peter telling us that you know, we need to long for the pure milk. But now we have, in Hebrews, the author is telling us that 
we're so immature still that we can't even handle the steak. We can't even handle the solid food of the Word of God. How do we get that? Maturity. How many of us growing up had foods that we could not stand as children, but now as adults we love them? There's a lot of foods I can think of that I, don't, I did not particularly like whenever I was growing up as a child, but now it's something I really, really enjoy. Why? Because I have acquired the taste. I've come to a maturity that has allowed me, and through Bible study, that maturity is allowed to grow. Okay? Acquiring that taste or appetite, as discussed above, comes from maturity. Okay? Our uh, third reason that Bible study is essential is for spiritual effectiveness. 2 Timothy 3, 3 verse 16 through 17, a very famous passage in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when talking about the Word of God says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And this is a passage that most of us have probably heard several times. So what is the nature of this passage? What is, what is this telling us? What's the nature of the scriptures? First of all, we know that the nature of the scriptures is that they're inspired. It's a Greek word that means God breathed. Okay. We also know that it's a, it's a text that's known as to be inerrant in its original autographs, to the, at, at least. Okay? So that means that it's inspired by God, it's been superintended by God, and it's uh, error-free. It's error-free. Okay? What about the function and benefits? What can we glean from this passage about the functions and benefits of Scripture? Well, there's several of them. One of them is to teach doctrine, to know what is right. And that's where we go to understand what teachings we should be learning about. Uh, it's profitable for reproof, for rebuke, what is not right, for correcting, how to make it right, for instruction, how to keep it right. <clears throat> and that's the uh, different functions that we can see there in 2 Timothy, the third chapter. Okay? Two different examples that's very interesting. When we actually look at that passage, what does it say? What's the purpose? That every man of God, that every woman of God can be equipped, can be prepared. That we would have the necessary tools or weapons in order to grow in our spiritual growth as well as being spiritual effective. Uh, just off the top of my head, uh, or not on the top of my head, but obviously on the notes, but um, maybe you could you know, relate to these two examples and you've read them before, is that uh, the sword of the Spirit found in Ephesians the sixth chapter, it gives us all the different ideas about what the Christian armor is to be. But there's only one weapon. There's only one offensive tool that's used, and that's the sword. Of course, that's the word of God. Jesus himself, on his temptation, uh, whenever he was in the wilderness, and that we are presented with that story in Matthew, the fourth chapter, verse 1 through 11, the only thing that Jesus used was the word of God to defend Satan. That's the tool. That is the weapon. That is the tool that he used, and it was what he needed to be effective. And, of course, he had that as well as the Holy Spirit uh, to be able to fight off Satan, the devil, in that instance. So this is just a couple reasons why we should study the Bible. Now comes the question, why do we interpret? What is so important about interpretation? What is so important about interpretation? I have an interesting quote for you. 
Interpreting the Bible. This comes from John Balchin, Understanding Scripture on page 8, uh, someone who wrote and has written extensively on this subject of a Bible interpretation. He writes, Interpreting the Bible is one of the most important issues facing Christians today. It lies behind what we believe, how we live, how to get on together, and what we have to offer the world. And of course, we can imagine when it comes to interpreting the Bible, obviously that's going to lead us to what we believe and how we actually apply it to our lives. Okay, uh, So we need to know the meaning. We need to understand the meaning then. Okay, Whenever Mark wrote that gospel, and he presented Mark the first chapter, the very first portion of his gospel, what did he want to relate to his hearers? It makes sense that probably Mark, when he was writing this, probably had a certain uh, purpose in mind. He probably wasn't indicating that everyone needs to go out into the wilderness to find God. Most likely. And so if that's not what Mark was intending to mean, then how could that be the answer to us in the here and now? Okay? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It's a quote from Fee and Stewart from their book, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. Okay? We have to understand the then and there before we can understand the here and now. Let's just think about this. What about some conflicting passages, or interpretations, rather? All of us have probably been in a situation where we've seen conflicting interpretations of the Bible. Okay? How about John, the 10th chapter, verse 28? A very key text that's used, typically, of people who want to preach or teach what is known as eternal security. It's basically a Calvinistic doctrine uh, that goes back to Augustine that basically teaches that once a person is saved, there is nothing that can be done ever to lose that person's salvation. So once saved, always saved ideology. How about baptism for the dead? 1 Corinthians 10, 15, verse 29, baptism for the dead. We know that this is common within some Mormon circles, something that is taught and believed. Is this what the biblical message is teaching us in these passages? Obviously, there's a lot of people that have vigorous disagreements on, this, uh, <clears throat> on these passages and to misunderstand them, to misinterpret them, is going to lead uh, to us understanding the Bible improperly and teaching it improperly. We also know that it's essential for moving beyond observation. It is essential for moving beyond observation. Observation is discovering what is there, and interpretation is deciding what it means. We have to first observe before we can interpret. Let's just think about this. Going back to that passage, those two passages we've already seen. If I'm going to just literally read the Bible and just observe and never do any interpreting, I might be posed with a dilemma when I read 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 2, and, and I compare that to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Because if we look at a comparison, we see in one passage it says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. But over here in Hebrews, it almost seems like it's putting people down for desiring milk, or for drinking milk, or for needing milk. And so we have to ask the question, where, if I just observe these and I have no interpretation going on whatsoever, and I don't make any decision, then I might be posed with a dilemma. I might have a difficult time moving from observation to interpretation. Okay? Uh, another example, a surgeon's observation. We know that, for instance, if there was a doctor, uh, that you go in for because you have some sort of problem. Maybe you have a growth. 
maybe you have uh, a lump or something like that. Maybe you have some, you know, you're bleeding in some way. What does a doctor want to do? He wants to observe. He wants to see what's going on with this person. What's, what, what does it mean? Before a doctor can interpret and make a decision about how to prescribe treatment, that doctor has to observe, but then interpret those results. And so to be able to prescribe the proper treatment, a person has to come to an interpretation, whether it be a doctor or me and you trying to read and interpret the Bible. Okay? We must interpret with care, though. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 says, correctly handling the Word of God. And this comes from some Greek words. And actually, there's some historical or cultural uh, background that might be able to give us a little understanding of exactly what Paul meant when he wrote this passage. I'm just going to show you a quote from John MacArthur. Uh, he's talking about Paul's passage, correctly handling the Word of God. He says, Paul, because Paul's a tent maker, he may have been using an expression that tied in with his trade. When Paul made tents, he used certain patterns. And in those days, tents were made from the skins of animals and in a patchwork sort of design. Every piece would have to be cut and fit together properly. Paul was simply saying, if one doesn't cut the pieces right, the whole won't fit together properly. It's the same thing with Scripture. If one doesn't interpret the different parts, the whole message won't come through correctly. In Bible study interpretation, the Christian should cut straight. He should be precise and accurate. And of course, sometimes it might be a little easier than said and done. And we might even disagree on whether or not, you know, who's right, if I'm right or if you're right, or how precise we are actually being. Okay? Uh, and our last one, biblical interpretation is essential for applying the Bible properly. And that obviously makes sense. Interpretation is going to build into our application. Okay? Interpretation is the middle ground in between our observe, observation and our application. We have to first observe, then we have to interpret what we are observing, and then we can then apply it. Okay? We also want to reiterate that heart appropriation, not just head apprehension. It's not just about our head knowledge. We cannot just stay stuck in interpretation. We will eventually need to move beyond and go into application. Okay? A Bible is not meant just to give us information, but also to give us something to do with that information. Okay? So interpretation bridges the gap. I've already kind of went over that. I'm kind of trying to speed it up because I, want to, I don't want to run out of time. Uh, interpretation bridges the gap. What is there? That's the observation. That's the head knowledge. That's basically uh, the intellectual part that we are going to get. And then you have what we are to do with it, the heart, the action. Okay? The heart, the action. Improper interpretation, though. Now, obviously, I think many of us could probably think of examples about improper interpretation. When we interpret the Bible improperly, eventually it's most likely going to lead to some sort of improper application. Not always, but all, oftentimes. And this can either be benign or it can be fatal. Let's just think about this. If I was to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 through 15, and talking about how a woman's head should be covered, and I interpret this to mean that every time a woman comes into church, she needs to be wearing a hat, or a pastor interprets this to mean that every time a woman comes into church, a woman needs to wear a hat. What is that going to mean? What's that application going to look? Well, you might have a church full of women that are wearing hats. Now, I'm not calling this benign because it's talking about women, but I'm calling it benign because it doesn't necessarily, it's not going to lead to death. It's not going to be fatal or anything like that, which some interpretations 
unfortunately, as we have seen through history, can actually lead to deadly results. Okay? But, if I was to interpret, I'm sorry, if I was to interpret Mark the 16th chapter about handling snakes, and I was to take that literally, and I was to act upon that, then possibly I am dealing with a fatal interpretation. I am interpreting the Bible in a way in which could actually bring death to my life, which is something that has happened. And both of these uh, instances are actually examples of things that actually go on in life. So uh, it can be deadly. It can also be benign. And I'm not saying benign is okay, but obviously death is probably better than maybe some people being inconvenienced with having to wear hats. We have to be careful with the way that we interpret the Bible. So let's look at some basic terminology. We've kind of set up the, the seminar here trying to just establish, number one, you know, why, why do we need to study the Bible in general? Number two, you know, why do we need to interpret the Bible? Now we need to know some basic terminology. Okay? Uh, I want to give you this terminology for a reason. Some of these terms maybe you've heard of before. Some of them maybe you've never heard of them before. It doesn't make any sense to you. you know, why do we need terms like this? Well, basically the reason I'm presenting them to you is so that if you ever run across them, you will understand what is being discussed. You will understand what they mean. In the field of biblical studies, specifically in the field of Bible interpretation, these are very basic terms. Okay? The first one is hermeneutics. Raise your hand if you ever heard of this word before, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a very basic term in the field of biblical interpretation. It comes from two Greek words. One's a noun, one's a verb. Hermeneo and hermeneia. Okay? The origin of the term actually goes back to Grecian mythology. The god, or the god Hermes was the messenger of the god, the god of interpretation. And so when we read in the New Testament, and if you know this, most of us probably do, the New Testament was in a world that had been very Hellenized. Okay? Alexander the Great, about 300 plus years before that, had swept through the ancient Near East and basically brought Greek culture all throughout the world, all throughout that known part of the world. And that's why we see some people, we have Hellenistic Jews, we have Hebrew Jews. It's kind of a, a cultural mess during this day of age. But the common language that was used uh, in this day, as we have it in the New Testament, was the language of Greek. That was the common language. Okay? Uh, so, if we were to look at the New Testament, these terms are used about 19 different times. Obviously, hermeneutics is kind of our Greek equivalent to you know, the, the term hermeneia and hermeneiu. Uh, but, uh, if we were to look in the New Testament, 19 different times uh, you have these different terms. And most of the time, this term is a reference to translate. Okay? So, for example, I don't know if I have an example. John, the first chapter, verse 42, says, You will be called Cephas, which when translated, that's the Greek word hermeneu, is Peter. And so, whenever basically the field of biblical studies came about, uh, they looked back and they basically said, you know, it, it's just come down to be known as hermeneutics. And in a basic definition is that hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation which in a minute you're going to see something that might confuse you, and hopefully I can kind of you know, steer you away from that confusion. There's two different ways. Now, usually you don't really consider something an art and a science at the same time. They're different. But the reason that they consider it a science is because hermeneutics is, is basically the study of the method used, the method used when going to interpret the Bible. And so because a lot of different hermeneutical methods they're going to use uh, you know, an orderly system of rules, 
Uh, they're going to you know, be systematic. That's why it's considered a science. Why is it considered an art? Because communication is not a science. It is a, it's an art. It's flexible. You can't, you know, when it comes to language, you cannot have, you know, rigid rules that are too, stri uh, too, uh, too tight or else you're going to be lead led to error, especially when it comes to translating because languages are not equivalent. There is not always an equivalent word in one language for another language, okay? So it's an art and science, and the reasons for that is set forth, okay? What it's not, or hermeneutics is not the actual interpretation itself. Rather, it's the methods employed. It's the, it's the system employed when it comes to interpretation, okay? All right? Another word that we need to learn, and I don't know if I have a quote up here. No, I don't have a quote up here. I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, another term, which you've probably heard, let's see a show of hands who have heard this term before, exegesis, okay? Exegesis. It's a very basic term. It comes from, uh, again, Greek words, two Greek words, meaning from, uh, from or out, to lead out. Basically, it refers to the process of leading out from a text its original meaning, okay? So it's out of. Basically, it's the theory of going to a text and trying to derive meaning out of the text, Okay, so exegesis is the application of the principles of hermeneutics to arrive at a correct understanding of the text. The next term, it's our last one, is eisegesis. Anyone ever heard of eisegesis before? Anyone know what eisegesis is? It's the exact opposite of exegesis. Okay, instead of getting meaning out, it's putting meaning in. Now, I think that a lot of us would say, and probably all agree, that this is probably what we want to stay away from. Maybe you'll pick up a book someday, and you will hear someone, an author, or you'll hear someone in conversation accuse someone of committing eisegesis. That person is basically claiming that the person uh, that they're talking about has put meaning into the text and is not deriving the authority or the meaning out of the text. Okay? So eisegesis reads meaning into a text. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, we understand we've already looked at that passage. This would be an example of not handling the Bible accurately, not handling the Bible with care. Now, as we've defined these key terms, there's a part of this seminar that I really want us to take seriously, and that is the barriers and the challenges to interpretation. I want you to take the whole thing seriously. But this is something sometimes that people get uncomfortable with because they misunderstand, misinterpret, so to speak, uh, what we mean by we, when we say barriers or challenges to interpretation. Barriers and challenges. There's six of them. There's more than this, but I've just listed six. Okay? The first barrier is the time gap. We have 2,000 plus years that has taken place between today and 2015 and when the last text of the Bible was written. Obviously, that is going to pose an issue. doesn't mean it can't be overcome, but we have to respect that. We have to respect the fact that we are dealing with an ancient text, although universal principles, and it's a universal text that's God's word, but nevertheless, it was written and it was in a setting that is very, very much different and older than our age and our time today. We also have a space or a geographical gap. Most of us here, maybe we have, and you're fortunate enough, I'm jealous, uh, have not even been to the lands in which the biblical text was written in. You've got the nation of Israel, 
course, it was more than just what it is now. Uh, we have Asia Minor, or today it's called Turkey, or Anatolia, it's called that in history. Uh, Greece, Rome, Europe. Most of us probably hadn't even had a chance to go to those places. Some of us maybe have. And so what you have is, is you have a biblical message that was written not just 2,000 plus years ago, but also written in a different part of the world than that we even have even visited today. Here's a map. just kind of shows you, just gives you an idea. We're not going to go through everything right here. But just can shows you real quick where all the different texts of the Bible were written, or at least in theory. Most of the biblical books written are pretty well agreed upon. There are books that are disputed about who the author is and where it was written in the time period. But this just kind of gives you an idea of the places in which the biblical message was written, the different documents. And I have not been to any of these places. Okay? We also have a cultural gap. A cultural gap. Even today... Western culture and Eastern culture is very different. Okay? We have different customs. We have different ways of looking at the world. Okay? You basically pile 2,000 plus years of history on top of that. Obviously, technology is different. The ways of living, the perceptions of life. All of this is going to pose a potential barrier between us and the biblical message if we don't respect it, if we do not take it seriously. Okay? And a language gap. I hate to tell people this, but God's word did not fall out of the sky with the K, J, and V on top of it. Okay? The Bible was not originally written in English, wasn't written in Spanish, wasn't written in French, wasn't written in any of these modern languages that we have. The biblical message was written in three basic languages, primarily two, primarily one, a little bit of one, and a little bit of another. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The reason I say primarily one is because the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is the bulk of our text when it comes to the 66 books that we call the Bible. There's a literary gap when it comes to reading the Bible. Okay? Or not literary gap, but there's a, a language gap. Languages pose a problem. Do we have translations of the Bible? Of course we do. We have good translations of the Bible. Yes, we do. Do we have translations of the Bible that have errors in them and we even know where those errors are? Yes, we do. We've been able to identify them through the, you know, the studies of like textual criticism and things like that. But anytime you translate a language from one language to another, you are going to unfortunately lose some of the meaning because languages are not completely equivalent to each other. There is semantic range that factors in. There's all different types of things. Does that mean that that barrier is too difficult for us to cross? No, because fortunately, because of men and women through history, that have sought to preserve the Word of God, and also men and women that have sought to understand the languages, the original languages, have provided tools for us. And oftentimes, those tools are even in our actual Bibles, just our general Bibles in the form of footnotes. So there's a language barrier, another thing that we have to consider. This is just an example. You have Hebrew over here on your right, and you have Greek on your left. Now, not only do, do we have a language barrier, but Hebrew doesn't even read and function in the same way as English does, like it does with English versus Greek. In other words, I can go to Greek and look at that, and at least it reads from left to right, but I go to Hebrew, and not only is it a different language, but it functions differently. I'm reading from right to left. So that even poses an issue. Okay? 
Then we have a literary gap. What do we mean by a literary gap? A literary gap basically means that we don't necessarily write in the same way. We don't use the same figures of speech. We don't use the same genres. We don't use typically, I mean, some of us may. We don't have poetry. We don't usually talk in parables to each other. Maybe we do if that's something that we enjoy. But this was common ways of communicating in this day and age, and it's not a common way of communicating for us today. And so because of this, it poses a barrier because it is very uncommon for us in our language today. The last gap or the last barrier I think is one of the most important, one of the most unconsidered sometimes, one of the most overlooked, and that is the subjective lens gap. What do I mean by subjective lens? Well, everyone in here is a different person. Everyone in here came from a specific background, has specific personal experiences, uh, has specific maybe, you know, whether it be theological backgrounds, whether it be historical backgrounds, or, you know, when it comes to maybe you're from a different culture. Maybe you're not from America. Maybe you're from a different portion of America that almost has a culture within a culture. All of this works to form a lens in which we perceive things in the world. There's nobody on this earth that can say that they are completely non-biased. No one lives on Mars. Everyone has been in contact and had certain experiences. Okay? This is something that we deal with. We understand and we respect. And this is also why it's important not to do Bible study always in private. But sometimes it's good to come together and discuss the scriptures together. Why? Because if I'm standing right here and I'm looking at Steve Andrews, well, I see Steve Andrews from a certain perspective, the perspective of my vantage point. Okay? But Ian over here, he sees from a different perspective. And he can offer some more to me because of the perspective that he's coming from. And so there's a subjective lens gap, and the way we deal with that is that we come to grips that we're biased. Sometimes there might be things that we subconsciously are led or you know, motivated or you know, influenced by. Okay? So let's get to the actual method, inductive Bible study method, okay? Uh, what are we at on time here? 1040? Okay, so we got plenty of time, okay? Inductive Bible study method. Have you, anyone ever heard of this term before, inductive Bible study method? There's basically three different points that you're going to be presented with today, three different steps. You've already heard all three steps, okay? Overview of the steps. The first one is observation. Real simple. What does the text say? The second step is interpretation. What does the text mean? And the third step is application. What do I do? How does it apply? So basically, I'm looking at the text. What does it mean? Or what does it say? What does it mean? What do I do? Those three texts, those three steps that we're going to go through. Let's look at observation first. Okay? The what and why of observation. All right? Let's just look at a quick definition of what observation is. Observation is the action or process of observing something or someone carefully in order to gain information. This comes from the Oxford Dictionary. So an observation is something that is different than just seeing. It's actually a focused seeing. It's a focused look. This is a step that I want to really encourage you if you would employ this Bible study method. Uh, and if you don't, Still, observation is still important. If you don't follow these steps, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. These are just principles that you can apply in many different ways. Do not skip observation. It is very important. The more time you put in observing a text, and we're going to see observing is more than just sitting back passively looking. It's actually going to involve you actually actively in being involved in the text. 
The more time you spend in observation, the easier the next two steps are going to be. Because you are going to do a lot of the groundwork in this part, in this step right here. Okay? Uh, seeing does not equal observation. So what do I mean by that? In observation, basically we're looking for the who, what, when, where, and how. Okay? And just to give you kind of an example that uh, observation is not the same thing as just seeing, let me just ask you a kind of a series of questions. If I was to ask you how many steps there were in the building that you use regularly at work, maybe you don't have a building, maybe you don't go up steps, maybe you do. Maybe you're familiar with maybe some steps you commonly use. If I was to say, how many steps are there in the building that you go to work at or you know, where are you at your house? You'd probably say, maybe you know, maybe, you've, maybe you're an observant person, but maybe you're not. But you see them every single day, but yet you don't or you can't tell me how many steps there are. How many doors do you pass on your way to your office at work? Again, you might not have an office. You might have to apply this in a different way. How many stoplights did you drive by on the way here today? Hopefully none, but you get what I mean. So that's a matter of interpretation of what I mean by that. You probably don't know. You, you could even saw every single stoplight, but you don't know how many you went by because you were seeing, you weren't observing. What was the color of the shirt that your wife, your husband, your friend, or coworker wore yesterday? Well, didn't you see it? Why don't you know? Because seeing is not necessarily the same thing as observe. Okay? Seeing is not necessarily the same thing as observe. Right? Uh, so these are the steps. I forgot to put them up there. I apologize. Okay? What was the color of your shirt? your wife, husband, friend, or coworker yesterday, okay? And just to kind of give you a, an understanding, my notes and the PowerPoint's a little different, so if I get lost a little bit, I apologize. That is one of the reasons why, okay? Uh, let's, let's look at the first part of observing, okay? So let's actually get to the, to, to the, the core, the main facts. We kind of set up some examples of why observation is important, but let's look at some of the important parts of, you know, the, the key facts, okay? The historical and cultural factors, right? First thing, we have author, okay? The author who, I, who is identified as writing this text. There's a lot of reasons why this would be important, okay? Uh, an author can be important for your help or your interpretation for a simple reason of there might be another text that that author wrote. And you can go and look at that text and consider maybe the way that author discussed certain topics, discussed or used certain terms, and you can kind of maybe get an idea and a feel for this author is kind of using this term in a similar way over here as he is here. It might kind of aid you in understanding how that person is using that expression, how that person is using that uh, key term. How about the audience? The audience is also important. The audience would be the intended recipients of the actual letter or the document. Sometimes general, but sometimes we have a specific audience that's been given. So identifying the audience is important. Uh, ideas and phrases uh, might be specific to the actual location of that audience. Uh, if Paul was to write to the city of Corinth, uh, he might refer to things that are specific to that city, maybe certain places, maybe certain political things that are going on there. So the audience can be very important and can really aid us in our observation. How about the date? The date's also important, okay? Most of the dates of the biblical books are pretty much agreed upon, at least in a range, okay? They might not be a specific date, but usually there's a 10 to 15 year 
range in which they agree upon. Dates can be very important for a lot of reasons. One of them is, is because certain events take place. You know, if I was to write to you a letter on September the 10th, 2001, and I lived in New York City, it might, I might be a little different than if I was to write you a letter on September the 12th, 2001. I meant 2001. You guys understand what I mean. Events can take place that can give us some insight on certain things. Okay? So sometimes understanding the date can be very helpful. Location. Again, going back to kind of audience location, there are specific things uh, that are relevant to every city, to every location, that might be referenced there. And if you don't know the location, maybe sometimes it can actually pose a problem when you go to interpret why there's something being referenced that maybe you don't understand, but if you understood the location, it would make a little bit more sense to you. How about the main theme? And this is kind of difficult sometimes because uh, you can go to a Bible study uh, handbook or something like that, and a lot of times they will throw out there what seems to be the main theme. But basically, you're looking for any topics that seems to be continually driven at, you know, topics that are repeated, topics that seem to be pretty much the, the core of what's being discussed, okay? And then purpose. And purpose is also difficult because if it's not actually stated in the actual document, it actually turns into an interpretation. So in other words, if I'm reading a biblical text and the purpose is not stated in the document, why this document is being written, even though I'm inferring from everything that's written about that document or that what, the, what is in that document, the con contents, it's interpretation when I actually go out and say, well, this is, seems to be the purpose. Okay? It's my observation of the different things different ideas and topics being discussed, uh, but it's not going to be anything but interpretation, okay? How about the literary genre? Literary genre, okay? Genres of the Bible, genres of today, not all writing is equal. They all, all write in the same way, okay? There's different types of literature, okay? Today, me and you are probably used to, just in common sense, in our everyday, you know, example of whether we read a novel, in the evenings and read the newspaper in the morning. We probably read those two different pieces of literature differently. They have different functions. They have a different purpose. One of them is exposition. This is just, I'll show you a picture real quick. This is just a quick picture. This is the English division of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It kind of gives you, you know, how the different types of literature are broken down. Okay, you got the law, the history, the wisdom, major prophets, minor prophets, and over here on the New Testament you have gospels. Some actually are considering or, or do consider gospels to be a specific literary genre in and of itself. Okay? Uh, but oftentimes we, it, it's obviously there's a lot of narrative, there's parabolic literature in the gospels and things like that. Uh, history, the history book of the New Testament considered the book of Acts, the history of you know, the different events of the New Testament or the, the early church. And then letters of Paul to the churches. This is where we get to one of our first uh, genres, which I want to look at, which is the epistle or the exposition. Usually in the epistles, there's an argument. There's an exposition. There's some sort of thing that's being driven at, okay? a specific topic that's being talked about. Uh, and so when we look to exposition, you know, what type of literature is exposition in the Bible, usually it's the epistles. Okay? Usually it's the epistles. Uh, narrative. Narrative, we find that in... Um, Strangely enough, this is a difficult part because we do have books like the historical books of the Old Testament. We have the Gospels. We have the Book of Acts. All of them contain narrative. Even the Pentateuch or the Torah is narrative. Okay? But what we have is, is we also have it couched in with other 
types of literary genres. So you might be reading the gospel, and we're going to get to this in a minute, and it's primarily narrative, but all of a sudden there's a parable thrown out there. And so it's poetic. Or you're reading Isaiah, and you're reading some poetry or some prophetic type of genre, and all of a sudden it's a narrative again. And so there's genres within genres that we'll get to in just a minute. Wisdom literature, uh, books like you know, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and things like that. Uh, prophecy, books like Isaiah, books like Ezekiel, and then there's just prophecy snippets even in the middle of uh, you know, the Psalms or different texts and things like that. So there's genres within genres. And then apocalyptic, pretty much our text, we have two primary apocalyptic books. What are apocalyptic books? Daniel and Revelation are the ones that we have. Apocalyptic are different from prophecy because they're not just foretelling the future events, but they're actually describing what is considered cosmic events, very catastrophic events, uh, and very, very strong and vivid imagery uh, that is contained in these. And so because of that, there is actually considered a specific genre and certain interpretation methods and certain different ways that we look at it might be a little bit different than the way we might be reading an epistle from like James or the book of Acts or even like you know the, the book of Joshua or Deuteronomy okay so genres within genres that is very common as well all right uh, how about observing to record the following and this just kind of shows you again some of the genres of the Bible some of these pictures I have forgotten that I put in here but you have uh, law like in, you know the, the Pentateuch or the Torah as it's as it's called uh, is the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it is a mixture of uh, several genres. Narrative, but also ancient legal codes, uh, some poetry and songs in there. Uh, and then you have the history, wisdom, and poetry, prophecy, gospel, letters, and so forth. This is obviously a very general uh, description of the different genres of the Bible. Okay? Uh, all right. Let's look at some more terms or some more things about observation. Another step. I have step five here. Observe by recording the following. How about things emphasized? Is there something that's being emphasized in this text because it's being repeated constantly? Things that are repeated, that's another point. Uh, and what we, when we say emphasized, uh, just to kind of differentiate that from repeating, we might say that like, man, the Genesis, if I read that, like what's the most important parts of the, the story of Genesis? Should I spend all my time reading Genesis 1 through 11? that's talking about many, many, many years of history. Or maybe is the book of Genesis emphasizing Abraham and that family a little bit more because it devotes, you know, 39 chapters to it. And so that's kind of how we can kind of identify maybe there's an emphasis. This author spends this much time talking about this topic, but just a little time talking about this topic. It's going to help us identify what is being emphasized. Things repeated, terms that are being repeated, ideas, phrases, characters, incidents, circumstances. Uh, key and substantial terms, we'll look at that here in a minute more specifically, but you do want to identify, is there a specific term that's unfamiliar to you? Does there seem to be that this entire text hinges upon this phrase or this term? Those are identifiers, that things that you should probably observe and maybe jot down. Okay? Things related. Okay, things that are similar, things that seem to have something in common. There's a, uh, uh, things that are alike, there's things that are different or contrast because oftentimes what we do is, especially in epistles, we have uh, you know, examples of, you know, even in the Gospels where you know, Jesus or someone says something like, uh, the kingdom of God is like, and it gives us an example. There's a similarity there that kind of helps give us an interpretive key uh, to identify. Okay? 
uh, and there's metaphors used, things that are true to life. And this is sometimes a sticky part because sometimes it seems like it's true to life, but it might not be true to our life in the same way that we might think. Okay? Uh, so, again, this is just the observation stage, which is subject to change as you move along. Okay? Uh, make a basic outline of book or section of passages. Now, this is something that actually has very much helped me in, in the future, or not in the future, but in the past, and I'm going to continue in the future, but it is something that uh, helps you summarize uh, what you are reading. Okay? So making a summary uh, of each section, maybe it's an entire book, maybe you're going to basically look at the epistle of James, and you're going to basically come to five different sections, and you're going to label each section what you basically see this author talking about. Under that, you can supply subpoints. This kind of will help you build an outline to build upon further. Again, I want to reiterate, your outline in this stage is tentative. It's subject to change. You, don't have, it's, it, you can move things around as you progress through the different stages. So basically, there are more steps than this, but I did not put them in here because of time and because I think that they're a little overboard. And I think that this is kind of the, the primary steps that you need to take. And there could be others as well that could be added to this. Okay? Uh, the next step, interpretation. List your unanswered questions, key information, things that you still don't know that you need to figure out. Okay? Things that were not be able to be identified. And we're going to get to some of the tools that you might need in order to identify some of these portions here in a minute. Okay? So like the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how. Have you been able to identify that through your observation? Okay? Those are some of the things that you have to consider. Check other translations. And this goes back to the language barrier. We read in English, or most of us do. Uh, but in observation, uh, we have looked at what our passage says. We might be using the King James Version or the New King James Version. But it might help for you to go to another translation just to see how the translators differed on that translation. And there's a reason for this because there's semantic range in words. Words can be used in different ways. The best translations, and of course this is my opinion, are the translations that have been based upon committee, not denomination or by an individual. Uh, committees, uh, they're still biased themselves, uh, but you don't just have one person that's basically having all the translation controls. Okay? So it helps to understand the range of possible meanings by using different translations. A parallel Bible, for example, is very helpful in this case. And when you don't have any proficiency at all in the original languages, this is actually a method that they teach uh, for people that don't have any Greek or Hebrew proficiency at all. And it can kind of help you see how the language, how there's issues going on. That there's some, you know, there's, there's some disagreement or there's some variety in which and way that that can be translated. Okay? Uh, types of translations. There's two different basic types. Now, there's more than that, but two basic types that's primarily used. One of them is a word-for-word -word accuracy. King James Version is an example. They both have their pros and cons. Okay? They're both ones that you're going to be presented with. But a word-for-word -word accuracy is a good translation because we know it's precisely trying to translate in our language what the actual Greek or the Hebrew text is saying. The drawback is, is that sometimes you lose thought. Sometimes you lose some of the precision in thought because the way this English word is used today and the equivalent Hebrew word or Greek word, it's used a little bit different. 
the English is a little bit more flat. The Hebrew is a little bit more compact, or the Greek is a little bit more compact. It has much more range or semantic range in it. And so because of that, those are just some things that we have to deal with. And so I am the type of person that likes to have a primary translation. I grew up on the New King James Version, but I also really enjoy using other translations as well. The other one is the thought-for-thought thought accuracy, and this is where you get a little bit more liberal translations, like the NIV. And so what they do is that they do not have a word-for-word -word translation, but they try to translate the Bible based upon thought. Now, there's a danger to this because that means that interpretation and bias is going to come into, into, into play. Bias is going to come into play anyways, but whenever you translate a text and you try to do it thought for thought, you're trying to basically say, okay, what is the equivalent? I know this is the, you know, this, if I'm going to translate this word for word from Hebrew to English, this is what I would, you know, this is what it would say, but it, it completely distorts the meaning of what the Hebrew is trying to say, so instead I'm going to go for a thought for thought translation. So those are the things that are involved in what you would call your, like, meaning or thought equivalency translations, like your NIV. And there's even worse, you know, there's even ones that even get more liberal than that and, and take more liberties. Obviously, they have their pros and cons, as mentioned above, okay? Unknown terms, word analysis, okay? This goes back to identifying in the observation part these unknown terms. Lexical, syntactical analysis, also known as the grammatical analysis, basically. Words have meaning, okay? And sometimes they have a different meaning depending upon how they are combined with each other. And so this is something that you want to do in the interpretation part. To understand author's intended meaning, which is exegesis, we need to understand what a specific term means, okay? Specifically, what that specific term meant in that original language so we can understand what it means for us today, okay? The, I have a quote here real quick uh, from Roy B. Zuck, which I used his text uh, a lot in creating the seminar. He says, thoughts are expressed through words, and words are the building blocks of sentences. Therefore, to determine God's thoughts, we need to study his words and how they are associated in sentences. If we neglect the meanings of words and how they are used, we have no way of knowing whose interpretations are correct. The assertion, you can make the Bible mean anything you want it to mean, is, sure, is true only if grammatical interpretation is ignored. Okay? Of course, I think all of us would agree, if we do not have at least an objective source or core to go to, which is supposed to be the Word of God, uh, then that means that basically it's a free-for-all. We can all believe whatever we want, okay? Uh, uh, moving on, check-related pa passages. This is easy, easily done with most Bibles today. Cross-references, so what you're doing here is you're trying to look at, okay, so if you're reading a text in Acts and maybe there's an Old Testament passage that's being quoted, you can check that. Or you're also, you know, cross-references is also trying to link similar passages that's talking about similar things or using similar words. You, most study Bibles you kind of have this in the margin. There are actually books that are completely devoted to just basically showing references or uh, related passages or chain references, cross-reference books and things like that, okay? Uh, so consult secondary sources. Notice this is last. Again, this goes back to the idea and just a word on secondary sources. Anytime you have a conversation about the Bible, that's a secondary source. 
Okay? Because you're just hearing someone's perceptions or their opinion about the Bible. And sometimes it's a good opinion, sometimes it's not a good opinion. You're not checking secondary sources so you can be converted or so you can you know, be told what to believe, but you're just wanting to check those sources to maybe see if you've missed something. Again, it goes back to the idea of you, know, you are seeing things from a certain perspective, and you're also limited in your expertise. Okay? And so because of that, you might not have expertise on the geography of the Bible or the biblical lands or the language of the Bible or different, uh, you know, figures of speech in the Bible. So in this case, you can check secondary sources and they can be helpful, okay? Bible handbook, uh, there's many different good ones out there. Uh, there's a long-standing Bible handbook, the Halley's Bible handbook that's been out for many, many years, and there's been many different revisions. That's a very basic handbook. You can go further. Most study Bibles actually have an introduction itself to each book of the Bible uh, as well. So there's many different sources you can go to to look for a Bible handbook. An atlas to show you geographical uh, information, historical information as well. Most Bibles have maps in the back. Uh, that's going to help you. Obviously, most people in here probably have a Bible that probably has a map in the back. Even my small, thin line uh, Bible I have over here has maps in the back. So most of them are going to have those things. Of course, there are some that are better than others and are a little bit more uh, <clears throat> specific and a little bit more thorough. Okay? Commentaries. Okay? Uh, a lot of people are scared of commentaries, and sometimes they can be good, sometimes they can be unhelpful. Sometimes they're good because they can give you a little bit of insight language-wise, especially exegetical commentaries. An exegetical commentary is primarily trying to give you information on the grammatical structure and the semantic meanings of the words and the possibilities of certain terms. The best commentaries there are are the ones that give you three or four top positions on a text. A lot of texts there's a uniform agreement on. Some texts that are more difficult, there's more disagreement, the best commentaries are going to give you basically, here are the different views that author might say that they believe that this one's the strongest view, but at least they present you with other views. Okay? The goal is not to be told what to believe, but to see what others who have seriously studied the passage has discovered or have discovered. Something you may have missed. Again, going back to those barriers that me and you have when we come to the Bible. Okay? Now the last stage, which is pretty quick. And, not to, uh, and I anticipated this, that the observation and interpretation stage uh, is probably the bulkiest stage, but then we have to make a decision. After we've saw what the text says, we've, we've, we've tried to understand what the text means, now we have to move to the step of what do we do when it comes to putting it into our lives? What actions do we need to take? And I, Just basically in, in this section, because this is a tough part. I mean, some text in the Bible is very obvious what we should do, how we should apply it. Some of them are not so obvious. Okay? Uh, so I have a list of questions. Is there an example to follow? One word of caution, the Bible presents us with two different types of stories or two different types of things. One of them is what we call prescriptive. The other is just descriptive. Let me give you an example of this. Just because we see someone in the Bible doing something doesn't mean it's prescriptive to us. It's like, you know, it's, it's suggested that that's what we're supposed to do. Just because Solomon had 2,000 wives, or whatever it was, doesn't mean that that's what we are supposed to do. Okay? It's descriptive. It's telling you what people did, what they thought, what they believed, how they lived. But not necessarily prescribing you that lifestyle, or for you to actually put that action into place. Okay? Is there a sin to avoid? Uh, 
Obviously, there might be a spiritual sin to avoid. Maybe it's a physical sin that's going on, but you do all the groundwork and you discover at the core of that sin there's some sort of spiritual application that you could apply in the everyday here in the 21st century. Okay? Like, for example, we know that in the Old Testament there are laws about, uh, you know, putting what is known as a periphet around one's roof. Right? So if you have guests come over, they don't fall over. They don't get hurt. And that's a common thing in that day and age to eat on top of roof. We know that Peter was taking a nap on his, on his roof in the, in the book of Acts. There's also other passages that tell us about, you know, what we're supposed to do with maybe a bull or something like that or some sort of animal that's wild. It's for protection and love of neighbor. And so how do you apply that in the here and now? Well, we could have a discussion about that. Maybe if you have a swimming pool and you have children in your neighborhood, maybe you should put a fence around it because children can go over there and drown. You take steps to prevent someone having harm done to them because of this thing that you own, this animal that you own. Okay? Uh, some other steps. Uh, is there a promise to claim? Oh, and by the way, just because God gives a promise to one person in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that you get to claim that promise. There are general promises and there are specific promises. Some promises, it's not for you, but it's for this individual, and it was in history, and it's not because you're supposed to, reading in the 21st century, think that that's what God is going to do for you. Okay? Uh, some other ones, my clicker. I'm not hitting it right. Is there a prayer to repeat? Many different prayers in the Bible are very helpful in our devotional life that we can use and we can identify with that author, especially in the Psalms. Uh, is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Might be a passage that you need to memorize because you need a, that sword of the Spirit with you at all times. You don't want to have to reach for your Bible. You want that Bible to be implanted in your mind. Okay? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a challenge to face? So these are just some of the steps. After we get from the observation side to the interpretation and then go into the application, these are just some questions you can add to them. You can get a little bit more specific that you can ask yourself about this. Okay? Now, I don't have them on the slides, but if you notice on your handout, I have basically a list of Bible study tools. Very general. It's a very basic recommendation. Okay? Uh, if you look... On Bible study tools, on A, a good Bible translation, preferably two. I do recommend at least having two translations. Most of the time, we're living in a digital world. Not all of us are, you know, have converted to that. But if you have like a Bible app, like on your tablet or on your phone, you can kind of look at these. You know, you pretty much at your fingertip have every translation you can think of almost. Okay? And so my favorite translation is the New King James, the ESV, the English Standard Version, actually what's known as the Net Bible, the New English Translation. Okay? Uh, a concordance. Why do you need a concordance? Well, that's your basic tool for looking up the definitions of words, uh, a very basic definition. Uh, Strong's is you know, obviously one of the most popular. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they have them now to link to not just the King James Version, but also the NIV, the NASB, uh, all those different versions. But they also are more than that. They also will kind of help you identify where other you know, words are other than that just passage that you're looking at. I also recommend, if you have the ability, to maybe download what's known as eSort or a Bible software because it's going to take a lot of the guesswork and a lot of the physical moving books around 
out of the process. You just put in, uh, you know, most words in the biblical, you know, the biblical text is going to be linked to a number, and you can just put that number in. You can kind of, you know, it'll just all, you know, all of a sudden you'll have a little dialog box that's just populating all the different text that that word is found in. An expository dictionary, if you want to go even further, Vines is a very ancient and proper, you know, I don't call it ancient negatively, but I mean, it's, it's been very good for its history, but it is kind of being uh, revised right now, and there's some other ones that have kind of, you know, taken the lead and, some, uh, and, and are a little bit newer and I think a little bit better, like Moons' Complete Expository Dictionary of the Bible. Uh, that's a very good one. And I just give you kind of a list of those. Bible Handbook, the New Unger's Bible Handbook, Moody Press, Nelson's Complete Bible of Bible Maps and Charts. That's by Thomas Nelson uh, Publishers, Urban's Handbook of the Bible. Also, Halley, that's a very long-standing Bible handbook. Those are some basic things. And why do you need these things? Well, to do the observation, to look for dates, to look for audience, things like that. Those are going to be the places that you're going to be able to consult. Bible dictionaries, usually Bible dictionaries, they're going to be topic-based. So I want to know about you know, the god Dagon from the Philistines, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about the background material. Well, I might be able to go to a Bible dictionary and look up the name Dagon, and I can get some historical information about that god. Okay? And then a concise commentary. Again, want to reiterate, commentaries are very helpful, and they can be very positive, but the way some, it depends on how you use them. It depends on how you approach it, okay? Uh, I have the New Bible Commentary. It's a pretty good commentary. It's one volume. It's thick, but it's on the entire Bible, and it just gives you kind of a quick information on that specific text, okay? All right, so we've come to an end. I'll turn this off. I don't know if I made the battery go out. It doesn't matter. We only have one slide, and it was just a picture of hands raising up for any questions or anything like that you might have. There we go. I'll try to answer them if you have some questions. Can't promise. Just, yes? Uh, we can make some more. If we don't, well, he's got him. Ian's got him. All right, if we don't have any questions, I appreciate your guys' time. Uh, again, if you think of some questions, you know, in the process of this weekend, you want to come and ask me, feel free. I'll be here. Uh, I'll be here all weekend. Uh, I appreciate your time again, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for being present. I hope that we have a wonderful weekend. I'm excited about it. Last day of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and get to see some of your, your faces I hadn't seen in a while, and get to discuss and visit with you uh, the plans that God has and looking forward to God's kingdom. So thank you.